Please take your Bible and open to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John today. There are two equal and opposite errors into which Christians fall with respect to the practice of their faith. The first is self-righteousness. And I might add, I think this is the most dangerous of these two perspectives. Both of them are blatantly wrong, but this one falls into the category of the worst of the two. Let me illustrate this from my own life. Over 30 years ago now, I remember sitting in my chair in my bedroom in Arlington, Texas. My wife Sally was up preparing for the day, and I had finished my quiet time. I was reading to the book of Job at the time, and I really mused aloud, and I said to her, Am I self-righteous? And it was about that long, and I realized that she was not going to say the word, but she'd already answered the question. Yes, you are, Mike. You are self-righteous. And this is true of those of us who battle self-righteousness. We're big on the rules, but hard on the rule breakers. There is another error into which Christians fall as it relates to the practice of their faith, and that is what I would call self-indulgence. They are big on freedom. They advocate the freedom that is ours in Christ. They say, you are free to do whatever you want to do because you are righteous in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not true at all. We're free not to sin anymore. That's we're free. We're free from sin. We're not free unto sin. Big on freedom. Also not hard on the sin in the lives of those who hold that position or others whom they know who have that perspective too. What is the right response to the sin in our lives and to people who we might call sinners? Are we to condemn those who do know not Jesus and are sinners, or even those who do and who have adopted this idea of self-indulgence as being the rule of the day in their lives? Well, remember that Jesus was described by those who didn't think too highly of him, and I might add, they were the self-righteous types. He was described as a put-down, as the friend of sinners. There probably was no greater compliment than anybody had ever made of Jesus than when they called him the friend of sinners. Because it showed that Jesus was available to all people. He was no respecter of persons like God his Father who is described in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17. He is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and he is one who does not show partiality. Jesus does not show partiality. Isn't it amazing when we read the gospel accounts how people who would be considered the greatest sinners in Israel 
were the people who were most at home with Jesus? It's amazing, isn't it? Are we to wink at their sin when we see people in sin? Did Jesus wink at people's sin? Did He say, oh, it's okay? Well, let's see what Jesus does in response to a very famous person in the Bible in the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 8 of John, beginning with verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to Him. And He sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger began to write on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. From now on, go and sin no more. This was not Jesus' first brush with an adulteress. In the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 39, Luke reports an event in Jesus' life. Jesus was invited by a certain Pharisee who evidently was well-to-do to come to his house. And there was a banquet which was being thrown probably on behalf of Jesus. As the guests surrounded the table, and as they would assume a relaxed position, they would actually sort of stretch out and with their left elbow lean on the table, with their right elbow they would eat the food. And as they were beginning to take the meal together, there was this figure who seemingly wandered in from outside. An uninvited person showed up. This would have been quite normal because this man's house was a large house. We know that because he had a courtyard and the meal was being served in the courtyard. And people would just sort of come and go. We don't have any idea what life was like in first century Israel. It was a festive occasion whenever a meal was given. And people from the outside, could come in. So this woman walks in. And as she walks in, the thing which we would notice about her is that she was crying. She was not wailing. She was not crying loudly. But you could see, if you looked at her closely, there were tears streaming down her face. And she approached Jesus. She came up behind Jesus. Now, I'm of the opinion that Jesus knew she was there. He's highly intuitive. We have noticed in the book of John, in the second chapter, that Jesus knows all men. He knows what you and I are thinking, even when we're not saying a word. And He sensed her presence. 
He evidently did not turn around, but he was not startled when the tears she was crying began to fall on his dirty, dusty feet. And then she took her long hair, and as she knelt at the feet of Jesus behind him, she began to clean his feet with her hair. And then she had brought a vial of valuable perfume with her. It was very fragrant, and she opened the top, and she poured that vial of perfume on the feet of Jesus as to anoint Jesus and say, Master, you are a friend of sinners. I am a sinner. Lord, I am a prostitute. That's what she really was, according to the text. But you love me, Lord. You show mercy to me. And then in chapter 4 of John, we encountered another woman who had been married multiple times, and the man with whom she was living was not her husband. She came at midday to draw water from the well, a time when no other woman would come. Why do you suppose she came at that hour, the hottest hour of the day, instead of coming early in the morning with the other women? Because she had tried that. And she was shunned by the other women. And she would notice they were whispering to one another when she showed up. So, to avoid the embarrassment and the uneasiness associated with her situation, she came. Jesus asked her for a drink of water. You remember the story. And they began to dialogue with each other. Jesus talked about some sort of living water that he had. And she looked around. She saw Jesus without anything to draw the water out of the well, which was deep. And she said, how can you do this, sir? This well is deep. You have nothing with which to draw. And then they entered this conversation. And Jesus put the finger on her sin. He said, you're living in adultery. And then he gave her the good news that this living water was not physical in nature, but spiritual in nature. And this woman was changed as she trusted in Christ, as she turned away from her life of self-destruction at the hands of other men. And by her own choice, I might add. And she became the most outstanding evangelist for the gospel who bore the name Samaritan. She went back into town, and the whole town was set on fire. And they came out to see Jesus, and many of them believed in Christ. And now we see him with this lady. A trap had been set for Jesus, but a trap had been set for her too. When was this trap set? Well, look again at the text. Verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. What had happened the previous day? The previous day was the eighth day. It was the great day of the feast. Moses' law only prescribed seven days, but as this feast unfolded through the centuries, the eighth day was sort of the climactic day. It was a day of great celebration. And Jesus, seizing upon the opportunity in the temple, stands up. He usually is found sitting as he is in this text. Rather, he stood up on that great day and he cried out, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who are thirsty, and drink. And out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. What a day. What an impact Jesus had in inviting 
those people, and many of them did come. In fact, look at verse 2. When this trap which had been set up for Jesus was actually coming to fruition. Verse 2 says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple from the Mount of Olives. He had camped out on the Mount of Olives, and all the people were coming to him. These people had indeed discovered that what Jesus had promised was true. If they came to him and they drank of him because they were thirsty, out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water, and they could not wait until getting back there that morning, early in the morning in the temple. They wanted to be as close to Jesus as they possibly could get in order to hear what Jesus had to say. And Jesus sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees, these were the ones who set the trap. They had set a trap to set the trap. We see how they set the trap that set the trap. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They set the stage for this unnamed woman to be caught in adultery. That would require that they get someone to be in league with them to get this woman caught in adultery. you know who that someone probably was? It was the man who committed adultery with her. It was a man who was probably paid off in advance. It was a man who was told, if you can get this woman to go to bed with you, and she's not your wife, if you can get this woman to go bed with you, then we'll let you go. You'll be free. You won't have to pay the penalty that Moses prescribed for someone who commits adultery. He's conspicuously absent, by the way, in this scene. He should have been there standing with her, but he's nowhere to be found because these people who set the trap for her and who were in the process of using her to set the trap for Christ, these people didn't really care about whether the law had been broken. What they cared about was catching Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Let's read a little further. Having set this woman at the center, can you believe this? This place was packed with people. The temple was packed listening to Jesus. And all of a sudden, they parade this woman and put her right in the middle of the court, probably where Jesus was sitting, teaching. Seeking to shame her, to expose her, to embarrass her. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women what then do you say, Jesus? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. This horns of a dilemma that they had thrust Jesus upon. On the one hand, if Jesus had agreed that this woman needed to be stoned, and in so doing, agree with the law of Moses, then what would the crowd have done? they would have probably gasped because they had come to know Jesus as the one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. And that would have horrified the crowd probably. But if he said, 
we're not going to follow the law of Moses. We're going to let this woman go free. Then he would have blasphemed God. He would have broken the law. So they thought they had Jesus just where they wanted Jesus. There was a trial which was enacted right away. It's not a formal trial, but it has all the components of a trial. There is the accused. We've already considered her, but let's consider her a little more carefully. This woman was probably a young woman. How do we know that? Because when we go to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament law, the 22nd chapter, we read these words. That if a virgin who is engaged to be married is unfaithful to her fiancé, she and the man with whom she was unfaithful, both of them will be put to death and they will be stoned. Now listen. This woman would have been a young woman because the prescription for such an event was a prescription that was reserved just for young women. I'm talking about young women caught in this kind of sin. They would be stoned. If we look at the book of Leviticus, chapter 20 and verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, this is what we would see. If a married person is having a relationship with another married person other than his or her spouse, then those people will be put to death, but not by stoning. Let me just go back and, and make note of this. This whole idea of stoning people for sexual immorality, it seems barbaric to us. It seems so far into our thinking. This was the law of God in the Old Testament. It shows the seriousness of violating the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. It also shows the vital nature of people who are married to be faithful to one another. It was really exalting marriage, exalting the marriage bed. The writer of Hebrews says, in effect, let not the marriage bed be defiled. And so what we need to understand is this woman and any other man or woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, it was very rare for such a person to die as a result of the capital offense which had been committed. Here's why. Because the Old Testament law is strict, but it's also full of grace. How do we know this? Because if any person who is caught in any sin or law-breaking in the Old Testament system, that person would have to have two are three witnesses to come to testify that indeed that person had broken the law of God. And each of those people would be brought in individually to testify before the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. And if all of the witnesses did not agree, two or three, depending upon how many were there, if they did not agree completely, then case closed mistrial, it's over. That is grace embedded 
in the Old Testament law. In the apocryphal book of Susanna, the story is of Susanna who was falsely accused of sexual immorality. And there were three different witnesses who were brought in. And the scene of this immorality allegedly was under a tree in a particular area. But none of the three agreed with the other two as to which tree it was. So the case was closed. Let me read something to you which is recorded in one of the writings. It's called the Mishnah. It is the civil and ceremonial traditional laws passed down. Listen to what it says. The Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body, which so often as once in seven years condemns a man to death, is a slaughterhouse. What is that saying? That it's very unusual, maybe once every seven years, that someone who is guilty of a capital offense is found guilty on the basis of two or three witnesses and then that sentence is executed. So here was this woman, a lonely figure, really a figure who evokes sympathy from us as we read it because of her sin, what it did to her, and the position in which it placed her. Her accusers, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were lawyers, they were judges, They sort of did everything. And they were out to get her because they knew that they needed to go to Jesus to get him through such a situation. Let's think now about the public defender, Jesus. He's her advocate. What a beautiful advocate he is. You know, the word advocate used to be used for attorneys at law. And it's a good term because the word advocate comes from two Latin words which mean someone who's called to help someone who's in trouble. And Jesus was there in that situation. So, look at the last part of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down after having heard the question which was raised by the scribes and Pharisees, what then do you say, Jesus, about this woman's fate? So what does Jesus do? He doesn't answer immediately. He stoops down. And then with his finger, he begins to write on the ground. There's been great speculation without any final answer as to what Jesus was writing when he stooped down and began to write on the ground. This is what I think. Every interpreter has his or her own perspective on this. But turn to chapter 8:28 for just a moment. I believe herein lies the answer to the question. John 8:28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, speaking about himself being crucified, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. Now listen very carefully. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. This is what I believe this scene depicts Jesus doing. Jesus is down here writing something. I think he was down there composing himself and doing what he always did and what he always did best. He listened to what the Father had to say. He wanted just the right response. He wanted to hear the Father speak it to his heart so in turn he could relay it to the scribes and Pharisees. And also so that this crowd that was eavesdropping on this drama as it unfolded 
and to the girl who was at the center stage. Listening. When he had straightened up as they kept on questioning him, asking the same question, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say, Jesus? And this is what he says. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus, in that statement, indicated he believed in the law of Moses. Think about what Jesus says about the law. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, Do not think that I come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill the law. Truly, I say to you, Jesus said, that heaven and earth will pass away before one letter or one stroke of the law is gone until it's accomplished. He goes on to say, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he says, that person is least in the kingdom of God. Whoever keeps and teaches them is great in the kingdom of heaven, I should have said. So, Jesus was for the law. He says it here. But he adds this little thing of challenge to these accusers. He stooped down again, writing more on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. <coughs> it's interesting the way the crowd dispersed these accusers from the oldest and in order they left to the youngest. The old bogeys in the group had acquired a little bit of wisdom. They really knew about the way they were and the youngest left. And then Jesus said to her, look what he says, woman, where are they? Now this was not a negative way to speak to her. Jesus, in chapter 2, speaks to his mother that way. And he speaks to others in the gospel. It's just a way of speaking. It was not rude. It was the common way. It was not disrespectful. Did no one condemn you? What did she say? No one, Lord. Do you find it interesting, as I do, that she addresses him as Lord? Does that seem interesting to you? No one, Lord. There was a change which had occurred in this woman's life, undoubtedly, as she had witnessed the way that Jesus had handled this situation. She was drawn to Jesus, who knew what she had done, but his wisdom was indicative of the fact that he was somebody unlike any man she had ever known, because he was not quick to pick up a stone and throw it at her. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Jesus did not condemn her. He says in John 3, 17, the Son of Man 
did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. It has not been too long ago I was at a graveside and there were testimonies given about the impact that a certain woman had had on their lives. There was one man who stood up and he said about this woman, this woman always loved me unconditionally. She did not judge me. Now look, Jesus does not judge anybody in the sense of this kind of judgment. But Jesus does speak the truth because He knows the truth sets people free. So He did not say, it's okay, honey. Thank you. That's not honey. That's Hector. (laughs) Appreciate it, Hector. Awesome. Where was I? Yeah, I know it. But he called it what it was. It was sin. Do you know the most loving thing that Jesus does for you and me, in addition, secondly, to his death on the cross for us? The most loving thing he does, he tells us when we're sinning. You know why? Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. He came to free us from living death right now. Because apart from Jesus Christ, none of us has life. He's come that we might have life and have it abundantly. A surplus of life is what he says. The devil, he says, in that same sentence, came to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil was trying to destroy this young lady. Jesus told her the truth, which had the capacity to set her free. And evidently, she embraced the truth. And in saying to her, go and sin no more, this is for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're outside of Christ or in Christ. This is for every person in the room, so listen up. Jesus sees the potential in you to become what God created you to be to begin with. A child of God who reflects the image of Jesus in your life to become all that He would want you to do. To be like Jesus Christ. You say, that's impossible. It's not impossible. That's why Christ came. To restore the distorted image of God in you because you were born with a sinful nature and you've lived out of that nature. He came to make you a new creation. And part of His making us new creations, we're different. We are fundamentally different. And this lady, this dear lady, she embraced Jesus. She embraced the fact that she was a sinner. And she embraced the fact that He died to take away her sins. And she called Him Lord. There was a fundamental shift. Until that moment, she had been worshiping herself in a sense. She was self-centered and then all of a, and self-indulgent. All of a sudden, she's here and she's Christ-centered. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, as it were. Trusting Christ for her life. What a life. I wish we knew the rest. We'll know the rest of her story someday. It's got to be a great story. No telling what God did through her. No telling. And this is true for you and me. 
So how does Jesus, Jesus show love to a sinner like me and like you and like her without being unjust? Doesn't this violate the nature of God who is a holy God and Jesus is God in the flesh? Well, turn to Romans chapter 3 and we're going to seek an answer to this question. Verses 23 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That means Jesus paid for all of our sins when He was on the cross. God the Father poured all of His wrath for sin on Jesus because Jesus became sin on our behalf and took our place of punishment for our sin. And then the text goes on to say, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He that is God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and justifier. Who is Jesus? Well, I just said it a moment ago. He's God become man. Fully God. Fully man. John speaks of him this way in the book of 1 John. He says, My little children, I write these things to you, meaning the epistle of 1 John, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Do you know the Bible has been given to us to teach us what is sin and what's not sin? How to live by faith and not by our own way of living? Wandering and meandering through life? It goes on to say, But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our attorney who defends us just as surely as he was the defender of this woman caught in adultery. And he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus, totally just, totally righteous, could show love to this sinning woman and redeem her, save her from her sin, forgive her at the same time. Because in his justice, Jesus gave his life for us. The just for the unjust, as Peter says, that he might bring us to God. This is our Lord. What a gospel we have. What a Savior we have. I don't see how anyone could know this message and not run to Jesus and fall at his feet and beg his forgiveness and understand that he doesn't hold us off when we come like that. He grabs us up and holds us close and He will never let us go because we have been drawn to Him by the Father. And He's so pleased with the Father's gift of people like us and people like this dear woman who had a change in her life. Here are a few points to ponder as we finish this morning. The Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
There's some pretty tough words in there. I can dig the teaching. What about the correcting, the rebuking, and training? I can handle the training, but I don't like those two mental words, correcting and rebuking. But Jesus, remember, is our best friend. And you do not have a friend, nor do I, who really is a friend, unless that friend is willing to show us where we're wrong so we can get in sync with the Lord. The Bible is God's means by the Holy Spirit to show us where there needs to be change in our lives. And if you have a self-righteous bent like I do, there might be a tendency like I have exhibited in times past to use the Bible to beat people up with. Well, the Bible's not designed to beat people up. It's designed to set people free. That's what the Word of God says. Jesus talks about that later in this very chapter. That's the first thing. I like what H.P. Lydon, a canon in the Anglican Church in Great Britain in the 20th century, he wrote this. Have a heart of iron with yourself. He meant be demanding of yourself. Demanding that you want to please the Lord. You want to be a person who obeys the Lord. Have a heart of flesh for your neighbor. In other words, be accepting of your nature. Don't neighbor. Don't rush to judge. But when the time comes and you are one of those spiritual people who is called to go and find one of those wandering sheep and bring that sheep back, go in a spirit of gentleness. And this is why. Because you know that if it were not for the grace of God, that's exactly where you would be. Exactly. You're no better than anybody else. Here's the second point to ponder. True conversion leads, leads to change. It leads to transformation. As we read from 1 Corinthians 6, I know you noted this list of people who are habitual sinners in one or more areas, and one is sexual immorality. And it says about those people in Corinth to whom these words were written. Did you notice it in verse 11? Some some of you were like this. You were sexually immoral. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. You have been born again. And now you have the power not to sin. Do you know that? I tire of hearing people say, I just can't quit. Whatever it is, it's a sin. It, it is an error in thinking. And if a person knows Jesus, it's wrong because you can escape. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. The Bible says in the book of Romans 6, Therefore, do not let sin reign. Stop it, really, is what it says. Stop letting sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And it goes on to say, sin will not master you. If you know what, sin will not master you. So let's get over it, Right? Are you a slanderer, a swindler, or any of those other things? Not just sexually immoral. 
there, that, that whole deal, I don't know how anybody could read that and not see yourself in it in some way when you read that list. But this woman in question was sexually immoral. She was confronted by Jesus with her sin. Jesus, Jesus showed her mercy and she called Him Lord. And she was saved. And she was changed. And the Lord, I know, used her. Just like He wants to use you and me. Third thing, finally, we're not to condone sin. That means we're not to say, it's okay, it's okay. You can go ahead and do whatever you want to do. That's foolish. And it's not loving. It's hateful, really. Because if we know Jesus, we have the answer to a life that's dominated by sin and all the effects of sin, the emptiness, the guilt, all those things associated. And Jesus died for the shame and the guilt of all of our sin. We're not to condone the sin, nor are we to condemn the sinner. We're to be like Jesus in the way we relate to people who find themselves entrapped in sin. Do you see yourself in this story? If so, do you identify with the crowd? They're just curious. They're not adulterous. They're not particularly religious. They're just listening and observing just in the crowd, almost indifferent. And then there are the scribes and the Pharisees. Boy, they are out to get Jesus and this woman. Their interest is not in people whatsoever. The only interest they have is in themselves and maintaining their stranglehold on the life of people in Israel who were Jewish. And they did that by controlling the law. They were legalists. Are you that kind of person? It's hard pill to swallow when you see yourself as one of these persons. But it's the grace of God when that's revealed to you and me. It's so relieving to just say, Lord, I, you know, I can't be you. And by the way, have you ever thought about Jesus in this way? He's the only God who's ever been known who has wounds. And His wounds were marks of love to secure our salvation. So, we might be part of the crowd we may see ourselves as a scribe or Pharisee. What about the woman? Are you caught in the cycle of sin? Maybe not sexual immorality. It could be that. It could be any number of sins. Are you caught in a cycle of sin and you just can't get free? You can't get free? Well, the good news is Jesus came to set the captives free. And He does it when you come to Him in honesty and humility. And give your life to Him. Would you bow your head? If you don't know Christ, and you feel a strong drawing to Him, please understand that you come to Him, and you trust in Him, and you claim Him as your Lord and your Savior. And He will give you freedom from sin and eternal life and abundant life.
Would you just say to Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Please, Lord, save me from myself and my sin. I want eternal life, Lord. I don't deserve it, but I'm asking you, I'm begging you, Lord, give me eternal life. Please come into my life, Lord. Thank you. Oh,